You may be seated. I'm going to cheat today because I um, am worried that coughing in the mic, in the wireless mic, is going to really upset you. And so I'm going to use this so that I can do this. See how that works? I'm glad to be here today because uh, uh, a touch of sickness has struck our house, so you may not want to shake my hand afterward. Um, But uh, as we celebrate God, the King of Kings, the one who is coming again, as we celebrate the prophecy that predicted and foretold a king would come from a flawed nation who would be the king of all kings, and the ruler of all rulers who would not only deliver his people but would set Jew and Gentile free from sin, we, we come to de- together to celebrate a good and gracious God. And so I ask if you would to bow with me as we pray. Lord, as we look to your word this morning, <clears throat> we see that difficulties often create a feeling of helplessness and hopelessness. And we pray now, Lord, that you would move us with the truth of your word, that we as Christians would determine now that if such a day comes for us, we would see that while we may be helpless, we are not hopeless. That you are God, and that we have been given the power by your spirit to obey you no matter what or when. Lord, we pray that you would work through your word to build your church. Help us today as we humble ourselves to listen, that we would understand that listening to God's word by its very purpose and meaning implies that we are called to obedience. And for some of us, that's hard because we've failed in the past and we figure there's no hope. We are discouraged and we think that uh, we've tried this before. What will another effort result in? For some of us, we may be so grieved by the sins of others that we can't see you. And so, Lord, I pray that you bring healing even in this room, even in this moment. Remove distractions, even my voice and my abilities today. Let that not distract your people from you. Let us be able to see you in all your glory. Just as Israel had a king and yet had to realize that their divine king was who would bring their salvation, so we too need to recognize yet again that it is you who deliver us, it is you who preserve us, it is you who have promised to protect and provide for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would meet needs physical, whether it's health-related within our body, whether it's financial, whether it's discernment and wisdom, whether it's freedom from besetting sins, that you would bring the freedom that only you can bring. We pray that you would bring life to those who may be with us this morning who don't know Christ and will hear about him in the moments to come. And perhaps they have heard many times before, or this may be the first time. Lord, we pray that your word and your spirit would work. Let the, let the words of your scripture and the teaching of the text be what the spirit uses to bring life. And we thank you, Lord, that we can pray not only for those that are in this room, but for those who are in Christ, who are gathered in other locations, both around this city and around the world. And even as I was reminded this morning, we pray for our brother Eric Bishop, a young man who was here in an internship this summer, who is preaching his very first sermon in Missouri. We pray that your word would be heralded through that instrument. And may you use him for your honor and glory. May that church welcome Uh, the teaching and preaching of your word this morning. And now, Lord, as we look to you, once again, we pray simply that you would help us. We pray this often and we pray this frequently, even now, because the need is great and you alone can meet that need. And so, Lord, help us now 
In Jesus' name, amen. If you would open your copy of the scriptures and find me in first, follow me into 1 Samuel chapter 13. This morning we're going to look at a situation which King Saul, where in chapter 11 God used him to work a miraculous and glorious victory over the Ammonites. We find himself, find Saul in an entirely different situation. And he's overwhelmed by this situation. In fact, chapter 13 and 14 kind of are one big narrative, but for time's sake, we're going to split and we're going to stop at verse 18 of chapter 13. Um, I don't know if you've been in a situation in which you've been overwhelmed. And because of the pressure of that moment, you have found yourself faced with ethical dilemmas that you would not have thought you would have felt the pressure. Um, You know, there's maybe there's money left somewhere, and because of your circumstances where you're dead broke, you see that money, and you would have never thought about taking it before, but now the thought crosses your mind because of your desperation. Or maybe it's because you have been caught in a lie, And we all know what's the best way to deal with a lie? It's to cover it up with another lie, right? That's our human nature. And so we don't want to confess the facts as they are. And we are now tempted to create a new narrative. We find that several uh, times in this passage and through the story of Samuel, we will see over and over again how uh, when squeezed by circumstances, we often respond the wrong way. And it's not easy to act in faith. Our fear is a powerful motivator. And this morning, I'm not trying to motivate anybody by fear. We're going to see that Saul was consumed with fear, and for good reason. In fact, we can be rightly sympathetic with Saul based on the circumstances that he finds himself in. But here's the argument that the text is making to its readers who lived long after Saul had passed away. The writer of Samuel wants them to understand that you need to determine now that you will obey God no matter what and when. Determine now that you will obey God no matter what or when. Because Saul is preparing himself for a war, but he has not prepared his heart This is a sobering reminder for us. We see two sad accounts in chapter 13. First is the paltry size and the poor outfitting of Saul's army in contrast to the Philistines. And second, we read that Saul's disobedience cost him a dynasty. So let's read, follow along as I read from 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, and we'll go to verse 8. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that, they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling 
He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Let's just pause there for a moment and think about Saul's situation here. If you do jump down to verse 19, look, look what we see, and we'll dig into this a little bit more next week. There were no blacksmiths to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears, but every one of the Philistines went down to the, or every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So, on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. I mean, you, you look at the circumstances here, and what we see, uh, Saul's faced some challenging trouble here. Uh, we're opened with verses 1 and 2, giving us some issues. And, and just to be clear, verses 1, Saul wasn't a baby. Uh, he wasn't living for one year and they became king. Uh, there was something lost in the, in the transmission of the text. And so there's a couple ways that that gap could be fixed. The ESV and the RSV <clears throat> interpret what's missing in relationship to Saul's age. So the RSV literally reads this. Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign, and he reigned dot, 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 and two years over Israel. Our ESV um, reads it a little bit differently. It notes that some Septuagint manuscripts include Saul's age when he began to reign as 30 years. You'll see that as a footnote probably in your copy of the ESV. The King James may be more helpful here because it interprets it not in relationship to his age when he became, became king, but in relationship to events that took place in his reign. So on the first year of his reign, he reigned one year, and then when he had reigned two years over Israel, he chose men for his army. Either way, is it Saul's age or is it chronicling events that took place in his reign? It doesn't change the narrative, but I felt like I needed to explain it because for some, this may prove to be one of the flaws in the scriptures that prove why we can't trust it. And yet there's a reasonable explanation. And in the whole scheme of things, it doesn't change the narrative in one bit. But let's look at his circumstances. <clears throat> Verse 2 tells us that Saul's massive army that he mustered in chapter 11 has now been dismissed. Apparently, the 3,000 crack troops that he and Jonathan had with them were enough to maintain order in Saul's mind. And he and Jonathan are broken up into two camps, separated by about four miles. Jonathan, ironically, is guarding Saul's hometown of Gibeah. And then Jonathan, for whatever reason, takes initiative, and he goes and attacks a Philistine garrison at Geba. He defeats them, a small group of people there, and the Philistines hear of it, and guess what? Saul recognizes things are about to change. He blows the trumpet in Israel. He, because Jonathan works for him, his son is commanding under his authority, takes credit for it, <clears throat> and he musters all the army of Israel back together again. Battle is coming with the Philistines. Now what's interesting, if you look at verses 3 and 4, we see the word heard is used three times. The Philistines heard what Israel had done, what Saul had done. Israel hears the trumpets blow, and they understand that Saul has won a victory. And it's interesting to me how three times in these verses, the word heard keeps coming up. This is going to be key as we move a little bit later because we remember back in 1 Samuel 2, 1 and 2, that Hannah was praying and God heard her prayer and answered and gave her a son. Eli heard about his son's wickedness and confronted them, but they refused to obey and change. 
Samuel heard God's voice and listened in chapter 3. God told Samuel to hear and obey the voice of the people in demanding a king in chapter 8 and 12. So what we have is an understanding that to hear God is a call to obey God, especially as we look at chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. We saw this last week. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord of your, your God, it will be well. Verse 15, but if you don't, it will not go well for you or your king. So the point of Scripture seems to be that to hear God's word means that there is an automatic implication that we ought to obey it. Now, you look at what did the Philistines do? As we move on to verses 5 through 8, they respond with 30,000 chariots. They respond with 6,000 horsemen and soldiers beyond number. And ironically, where Saul was in Michmash, he gets moved out in verse 2, and in verse 5 we see that the Philistines have taken over Michmash. And further, that the arrival of such a large deployment of soldiers and military might has pushed the Israelites into the hill. It's led to mass desertions among the troops. Some literally went underground. Others fled to the other side of the Jordan. Those who remained with Saul were afraid, verses 6 and 7 tell us. They're trembling. And then verse 8 tells us that Samuel doesn't arrive on the appointed time, and Saul is seeing people deserting him, and this is the circumstances. And as we read in 19 through 23, only Saul and Jonathan have weapons. Everybody else is slingshots, maybe bows and arrows. What is that against 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen? What is that against a military that has so oppressed us that they have kept any blacksmiths from opening business in, in Israel, and we have to pay them a, a large amount just to get our, the tips of our plows sharpened? It shows a very desperate situation. And the question is, what will Saul do? Will he pursue a course the Lord lays out for him or his own path? Further, what will God do? Will he abandon Israel or will he deliver them from a far superior army as he did with Deborah and Barak in, in Judges 5 or even with Gideon in Judges 7 and 8? Will God use a spirit-filled king to accomplish his plans? Now, let's just pause for a moment and think practically again where this hits us. <clears throat> it is very easy for us to allow our circumstances to cloud our vision of God. It's very easy for us to look at all the hosts that are arrayed against us, all the strikes that were, were being thrown, and we can feel so overwhelmed that we believe we are helpless and we are hopeless. But Christian, remember, your circumstances are not beyond God's ability. Remember that God is greater than your circumstances, so never allow the pressure of your circumstances to become an excuse for disobedience. We look at verses 9 through 14, and, and we see a negative example. I want to put this positively, all right? Saul blows it. If you read the text this week, you saw it. Saul blows it big time, and it's, it's an expensive price that he pays for his sin. So let me spin it positively. Decide now you will obey God no matter what or when. So we see the bookends of this passage demonstrate that difficult days do create a feeling of helplessness. So I'm urging you this morning to decide now that you will obey God no matter what or when. Because some of us are on a gravy train right now. Others of us are like between a rock and a hard place. We are wedged in so tight. There is no hope. 
So there's a word for both of us in this passage. Saul's response to his situation was to choose the path of expediency, of convenience. Let's look at verses 9 through 12. Remember, Samuel was late in coming. Saul has all these terrible circumstances surrounding him. And so Saul said, verse 9, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Let's look at what happens and takes place here. The king assumed the role of the prophet. He took for himself authority he had no right to wield. Now, it is true, we are right to be sympathetic with Saul. His, his situation was difficult. Uh, the contrast between the size of the two armies. So you've got 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, troops beyond number, and what Saul have? 600 men. His army of 3,000, his crack troops, the elite of the elite, had, had been reduced to 600 Not only is there a size difference, but then the equipping is is completely different. Only Saul and Jonathan have weapons. Everybody else is kind of homemade skills. Pitchforks, shovels. And not only do they have an equipment disparity and a force disparity, but God's prophet isn't there. The man who would give Saul the words that he needed to be inspired to lead the people, he was not there. And more of the army was deserting Saul. Now, I want us to think about this. Because if we find ourselves today in a situation where we are being just squeezed and compressed, and we look at our circumstances and want out, Let me just give you a word this morning. Remember, Israel wanted a king. We we want a champion to lead us into war, right? That's what they said in chapter 8, who will fight our battles for us. Israel had a king, but Israel was still dependent on their divine king. Don't let your circumstances sway you away from the reality that the stress and the pressure that you're feeling is devised by God to bring you to a place where your dependence on him is felt and realized to an extent that is, that is life urgent right now. It's essential. Saul, what does he do when Samuel confronts him? What have you done? Verses 10 through 12, Saul defends his disobedience by blaming Samuel and his circumstances. Hey, guess what, Samuel? You were late, man. And, 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 and the circumstances, they, you and them kind of created this perfect storm that forced me to do something I shouldn't have done. The people are fleeing. You were late. The Philistines have gathered. I'm sure they're going to attack, and I've not heard from God. Here's Saul, chapter 9, or I'm sorry, chapter 10. He's filled with the Spirit. Chapter 11, he leads Israel in a mighty battle. God gives him the victory, but Saul now is viewing his circumstances with human eyes, not with the eyes of faith. Have we set ourselves on a course of disobedience by doing the same thing. We choose to live by our own wisdom rather than by faith in God. 
We've perhaps have rationalized away our disobedience. Hey, it was just another quick look. What's, what's one more lie? You know, if, if they weren't such a jerk to me, I wouldn't have been a jerk to them. One commentator says this, and in a willingness to take responsibility for our own actions is often one of the early signs of an unfitness to lead. The way forward for any leader who is struggling to exercise the power he or she has been given is not to seek to exercise a power he or she has not been given. Here's the interesting thing. We can take and we can twist things in such a way that it seems like we only have this choice. And if you find yourself in that situation today, let me just tell you, you always have the choice to follow in faith. That's never taken away from you. We have brothers and sisters on the other side of the world who are literally being asked to lay down their lives for the faith. To deny Jesus means life. To continue to embrace their calling is a sentence of death. You always have the opportunity to follow and act in faith. If you noticed the seven days appointed by Samuel in verse 8, and you thought back, oh wait, I've kind of heard that before. It was back in chapter 10 in verse 8. Let me assure you these are two separate events. Okay, It wasn't like... They dropped chapter 11 and 12 in the middle, and that was a really long seven days because they fought a massive army, and then another army has showed up. Like, this is really chaotic. And here's, here's reasons why I understand it to be two separate events separated by many years. In chapter 9 and verse 2, we are introduced to a young, handsome man named Saul. Now, that description of young uh, can imply he was unmarried, and if he was married, to be a young, handsome man, that description would be that he had very, very small children, if he had any. And that's when he was anointed king. But in chapter 13, we're introduced to Saul's son, Jonathan. Chapter 14, verse 1, makes it very clear that they are one and the same. So how in the world do you you send a toddler out leading a thousand crack troops? Right? You just don't do that. So it's clear there had to be a big gap, uh, much time here between 10.8 and 13.8. Again, just wanted to address that because I know some of you pick up these little clues in the text and wonder what that is all about. But let's look at the high cost that sin is. Samuel, here's Saul's explanation of his disobedience. Basically, it's your fault, Samuel. You weren't here and all these other circumstances. I I shouldn't be held accountable. I had to do what I had to do. My hands were forced. What Samuel says is not true. That's not true, Saul. You have violated God's commands. Remember, you as king are still under the divine king's authority. Remember how I I brought some attention to the herd in verses 3 and 4? Now we read of the word command or commanded used four times in verses 13 and 14. And I think this is really making the author's point. All who hear God's word, his commands are responsible to obey them. And Saul's disobedience by taking an authority that he didn't have, by rushing and not waiting for the appointed time. Not only did he need Samuel's presence, he also needed Samuel's instruction. And Samuel had promised in 1223, he would never stop ceasing to pray and intercede for Israel. He would not cease to give instruction. This was the time that Samuel had set apart and Saul went forward, did it on his own. And God said through Samuel that Saul's disobedience meant his dynasty would end with him. Now that seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Maybe this is the Old Testament God that we're all supposed to be afraid of. He only gives you one shot and then you're done. Let me just say, God expects his leaders to be obedient And what God says is he will choose a man to rule in Saul's place, a man after God's own heart. 
So this man, by his sin, had forfeited his right to rule God's people in a way that demonstrated God's glory and God's supremacy. This was not a small thing that Saul did. It may ring hollow to our ears today, but let me assure you, when God responds this way, we need to understand that the sin committed is a grievous offense. We pass things off too easily. Oh, it's just, it's a white lie. As opposed to what lie? We, well, it was just, you know, it was just this, it was just that. And we minimize sin. God deals with it in ways that bring him honor and ways that demonstrate his glory. And although Saul's kingdom will not last, let me say this, we can be thankful that God's kingdom will endure forever. God will choose David to be king over Israel. And then God will, in his mercy, grant David an everlasting dynasty. And that would be fulfilled in Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of David. And this is the means that we have been singing thanks and praise to God for being the King of Kings this morning. Of his amazing grace, he sent his crown prince to this earth. And the obedient and faithful Jesus has established an eternal spiritual kingdom. You see, unlike Saul and even David, Jesus never failed and will never fail the Father. He conquered sin on the cross. He rose from the grave. He became the first king in the Davidic, or he became the final king in the Davidic line because he will never die again and his kingdom will endure forever. This is what's foretold, what's prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. Listen to these words. Daniel sees in a night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, disobedience by its very nature demonstrates our self-reliance. We will throw away the consequences. We will pursue our own path because we know better or we can somehow game, outgame the system and Disobedience by its very nature demonstrates self-reliance. And what we see here in this text is our need for a new heart. Circumstances can so overwhelm us that we feel the only way out is to do wrong in order to do right. And that, that shows a heart that doesn't reflect hope in God and a convictional commitment to obedience, no matter the cost. It shows us that this is why we need a heart transformation. So often we see the phrase occurring in Judges that each man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's the context of Saul's background. That's the world he grew up in. I mean, the judges were, were good for a moment and then just led Israel into sin. Gideon won. God delivered the Midianites into Gideon's hand, and he won a great victory, and then he collected gold from people, you know, deciding that, no, 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 we want to make you king, Gideon. No, 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 that's all right. I'll just take some gold. And then he builds an ephod, and this becomes an artifact of worship, and it leads Israel into idolatry. And this is the nature of human leaders which is why we need someone who can lead us in the right and good way, and Jesus is that. Our lack of faith in God will separate us from him, and the cost of Saul's sin was a dynasty. I mean, this is heavy, heavy. While the king is preparing for war, he forgot to prepare his heart. Don't let that be true of you. Christian, let me encourage you today. Resolve yourself today that where and when God speaks to you, you will obey, come what may. 
This was something that God impressed on my heart as a new Christian, as a college student. Like, I, I knew my struggles, and I just made a commitment to God. Wherever you speak, no matter how embarrassing it will be, I will respond as I ought to. I will confess my sins. I'll, I'll walk and the road and the aisle of confession and repentance. I'll, we had altar calls back in that day, and we, we tried to encourage people to come and make a stand for Jesus. I'm not sure that always was the result, but that was my heart. God put it within me. He convinced me that I needed to prepare today for difficulties in the next day. And resolve, not only that when God speaks, we will obey, but resolve also that you will never put your thoughts and judgments above God's. Don't allow the difficult circumstances to become a rationale for disobedience. I mean, what, what's parenting 101? Outside of feeding your kids and, and, you know, no fingers in the light socket. It's to prepare our kids for tests and challenges before they encounter them, right? You're going to go to school. People are going to show you something. They're going to offer something to you. And, and we want to warn you of the dangers of embracing that, of practicing that. We want to prepare you. Here's how you can answer that invitation to sin. Well, this is what Christianity is, is calling us. God's word is also preparing us to walk by faith and not by sight in difficult circumstances. We're seeing from the testimony of Saul's own life how we, if we are not prepared, preparing our hearts to obey God, that when it gets really, really hard, we're going to do what Saul did. We're going to justify our disobedience. We're going to blame others for it. We're going to let our circumstances so crowd out God's glory that we just think, we need to do what's convenient and expedient. <clears throat> Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart even though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Every Christian... You can have confidence that God has given you not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, who will instruct you and guide you, who will help you understand the things that are freely given to us by God. And that is the word that Paul is imparting to the Corinthians at a later date. He says that we have a a wisdom that's not of the world about what is really going on. And our circumstances must be interpreted through that divine spirit's wisdom that God has not forgotten us here in this hard place, that God has not abandoned us here in our suffering, but that God, in fact, is calling us in his divine sovereignty. He's placed us in a place of helplessness, but not hopelessness. He's placed us in a place where by our obedience and commitment to his word, we will demonstrate his glory to the world. According to verse 10, as we go back to our text, it says that Samuel arrived right after Saul sacrificed. So you see, Saul, Samuel wasn't late. Saul was early. I, I doubt that there was a time. I'm going to be there at 3 p.m. It was, I'll be there on the seventh day. And this was no doubt a part of a cultic feast. As we go back and we look at the language of the appointed time, it's often used to describe the yearly religious feast. And so um, Saul offered a sacrifice. That wasn't inherently bad because David and Solomon would do that later, and God doesn't rebuke them. The, the issue is that the, the time appointed, that seven-day period, was around a religious national uh, calendar. 
it, it's a time where God's prophet, as we learned back in chapter 7 and verse 16, that Samuel would travel from Bethel to Gilgal and to Mizpah, and then he'd go back home to Ramah. And so he was the one that was to lead the worship. He was the one that was to lead the nation in intercession. He was the one that was to lead the nation in instruction, not Saul. And this, again, points out that Saul was premature. He let his fear get the best of him. And then what's so sad is, look at verse 15. We haven't read these verses yet, so let's, let's bring our attention to them. Verse 15, after rebuking Saul and telling him of the incredible price his presumptuous sin has cost him, it says, Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah in the land of Sheol. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. I don't know that there's a sadder verse in this text than what we read in verse 15. That Samuel left Saul. These two men went their own ways. Saul arrives in Gibeah, numbers his fighting men, and discovers the deserters had reduced his army from 3,000 to 600. These 600 stand in opposition to tens of thousands. And now, geographically, Michmash and Geba are separated by just two miles. There's this huge rocky crag that's between the two armies. And the Philistines are now sending out raiding parties from Michmash, one to the north, one to the west, and one to the east. If you've ever watched The Lord of the Rings, what came to my mind is the Battle of the Black Gate where King Aragorn has got his small force right outside the gates and Sauron's mighty vast hordes completely surround them. Saul's situation hasn't changed. He's still... He is still in a hopeless situation, or a helpless situation, I should say. But what is more sad is reading that while facing this enormous and well-armed enemy that is there and is surrounding him and can send out raiding parties and nobody can stop them, Saul's just kind of holed up here with his handful of soldiers, is that Saul is not with God's prophet. The very man who was to give Saul God's word is no longer with him. And the fact that there is no evidence, there's no word that speaks of Saul having remorse over his sin, that he has not uh, confessed it, that he has not acknowledged it, that he is not chafing over it. He's lost a dynasty To be without Samuel is to be without God's word. Davis, in his commentary, writes this, to be stripped of the direction of God's word is to be truly impoverished. If you don't hear from your creator, you are the poorest of poor. It's one thing to be in terrible distress. It's another to be alone in that distress. By his disobedience, Saul had isolated himself from what he needed most, God's word. This is a dark, dark day. This is, this is exactly the reason if we find ourselves in a circumstance that's beyond our control and we feel really helpless and the pressure is upon us that we need to call out to God for mercy and grace. Because he promises it to those who do. He demonstrated in Israel's history, as I mentioned earlier, Barak and Gideon. Even Samuel in chapter 7 delivered Israel. God fought for Israel against the Philistines. 
He repeatedly delivered his people from physical enemies, and he is able and willing to deliver us from our enemy, the the enemy of sin. You just have to wonder, why did Saul doubt God's promises of protection and provision? Why do we? I mean, given the fact that any Israelite who was reading 1 Samuel also had everything that precedes it, Genesis through Judges. We have to wonder, why would anybody act on their own instead of waiting to hear God's instructions for a decision, for a pressure of the situation? And this is, this is where we're at right now this morning. You can be confident that God will hear your cry of repentance and faith. Hannah, in her prayer in 1 Samuel 2 He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. You see, our God is greater than your circumstances. Our God is not bound by our circumstances in the sense he is not limited by what he can do. All that he's asking you to do, don't be the hero, just obey him in those tight situations. Don't let that become an excuse for disobedience. See that while you may be helpless, you have hope, because guess what? Look around the room. You are not alone. You have Christians here who will sit with you, who will pray with you. You have brothers and sisters who will encourage you, who may even be the very means by which God intends to deliver you from this circumstance. Don't go it alone, Christian. Don't trust your heart to know better than God. Just follow him in humble submission. Where might God be calling you to act in faith? Is there some sin that you need to confess? Is he calling you to a certain decision or plan of action? Is there some, something going on in your relationship with your parents or, or with your spouse or your work that needs to be addressed? It's, it's one part of the equation to say we ought to do this. We ought to obey God no matter what our circumstances are. But thankfully, God has also provided us with the why component. Why should we obey God in the midst of distressing circumstances? Here's why. Simply, if you are a Christian, we love him because he first loved us. I mean, that, that transforming, powerful love that God has demonstrated to us in his Son on the cross, adopting us. He is not a distant, remote deity, uninterested. He is our Heavenly Father. We are told he has chosen us before the foundations of the world. He has predestined us for adoption as his sons and daughters. He loved us while we were still sinners and sent Christ to die for us. He's lavished grace upon grace since that time. He is good, loving, wise, and merciful. And so, therefore, Christian, God has provided all that you need to face your circumstances. He has given you his spirit, his word, his church. And when we weigh all that against our circumstances, we see, even in our most troubling moments, God is greater. He is good. And he is calling us to act out of the love that we have for him. Praise the Lord. Not only has he given us a new heart to obey, but he's also given us his spirit who gives wisdom. Who helps us understand our sinful motivations. Who calls us to our responsibilities. Who guides us into the right path. Who reminds us when we have forgotten how deep the Father's love for us is. And the Spirit gives us the power to love others, even our enemies. Today is the day that God has called us to prepare for a hard time. We may not know when it's coming, and I don't want to walk, you know, we're not walking around with uh, the shoe, the other shoe's about to fall, fear. Saul was motivated by fear, and he made a bad choice. We see that fear is not your friend, 
It's not going to help you understand your circumstances the right way. It won't lead you into a good result, a good plan forward from these difficult circumstances. But today is the day to prepare for such a time. And so I want to let Joshua's words echo in your ears as we go out this morning. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will it be the gods of your fathers they served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Resolve today, Christian, that you will demonstrate your dependence on God by obeying his word even in hard times. I believe God wants us to be prepared that he wants us to obey him in every circumstance. And that even when we don't see a good outcome, we can, by his grace, act in obedience. Lord, we pray that you would give us the conviction to see that following you, while not easy, is a better path forward than disobeying you. And it's not just consequences that we should be afraid of. I I don't want pain, so I, I won't stick my hand in the fire. It's not just that. It's the fact that we need to see that by our obedience in difficult circumstances, people are watching, and we can give testimony to what you have done in us and through us. We can make your name known by our obedience. We, when we act in consistent ways that reflect our holy God are such a stark contrast to the world around us. This is the means by which you intend to use us for your good and our glory, or for your glory and our good. And we thank you, Lord, that even if there are some of us today in difficult circumstances, that we are not in those circumstances by accident. We, we trust in God's sovereignty We believe that you've strategically placed us right where we are so that your glory would be made known to those that are around us. That you've called us to act in faith and to not trust our own devices. I pray, Lord, that you would build us through your word, and we thank you, Lord, for doing so. We have heard your word today, and now we are responsible to obey. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.